The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, this morning, um, you know, we, we've been going through this study in James, and Neely and I are living kind of this nomadic life this summer with no home and bouncing around. So I, I had the opportunity this week to actually listen to three or four sermons of Bill's over the last couple weeks and catch up with where we've been. And as, we've, as I did that, you know, it was really intriguing to see where James has been and now look at where James has us this week. Because he's brought in all these challenges on our relationships, on being at peace with one another, on guarding our words. And then you move into this section today, and what he's going to turn to and kind of focus on is our work. And what I mean by our work is the way we address and the way we approach the things that we do. And as you listen to those verses a minute ago, um, they're, they're, they're challenging They're almost simplistic and yet overwhelmingly challenging because what's going on in those verses is there's this practical application of the way we approach work, but it's deeply undergirded with amazing theology of God. And our understanding of God directs the way we approach our work, and you'll see that play itself out. And the title for today that I put up there and that's in your, your bolt in front of you is The Illusion of Control. And I chose that specifically because as I was thinking about, okay, what are we really being challenged with this morning? What I realized is we're being challenged to give up something we don't even have. Now think about that for a second because that's the reality of where we're at. We're being challenged to let go of something in our lives that we think we have, but in reality we do not have. And that's this concept of control. And when you think about it, if I asked you right now, who has control of all things? What would the answer be? Okay, good. We all passed. All right, God. We got it. Good. Um, and Jesus would have been acceptable there as well. But the, the idea is, you know, we, we would all mentally and even confessionally assent to this idea that God is supremely in control of all things. So let me ask another question. So what do you have control of? Nothing. <laughs> and everyone's like, nothing. Okay. All right, let, let's practically play that out then. So as you leave here today... What does that mean for you? Does that mean we do nothing? Does that mean we stop? Does that mean we... Re- what, what does that look like? And that's what we're going to dig into today in this passage because it, it's one thing to have theology, but it's another thing to put theology into practice in the way we live our daily lives and how that plays itself out. You know, as I was thinking about control, I was trying to think of an illustration of what this would be. And, and the best thing I could come up with is if you've ever been to Disney World, they have the you know, wonderful everything there because it's Disney World and all dreams come true. But they have this, this racetrack thing for little kids. And I, if you've ever been there, I, I took the boys on it and probably the girls. I, I remember riding it with Cress at one point. And we're riding around this racetrack. And the way it's set up, it's not like a fun park kind of situation where you're just bumping into people and drilling people. It's set up where there's this bar down the middle of the track. And you're in a car, and you can steer. But when you steer, you can only go here and you can only go here. And you can't ultimately do anything but go straight. And I was thinking, you know, that obviously that illustration falls apart at certain points, but it does kind of give us light on who really has control of things. When my son Cress, as five years old, is driving in this thing, does he have control of this car? Absolutely not. Disney's not going to let five-year-olds take these cars out and go crazy. Disney has control of the car. And it's kind of the same thing in our lives. God gives us the opportunity to live on this earth, but ultimately we need to be reminded repetitively of the fact that in the midst of everything going on, God is ultimately 
on his throne. And God is ultimately in control of all things. And so today, we're going to dig into these verses. If you're an outline person, um, I always joke because I always preach with an outline um, because I'm a teacher and you have to have outlines or kids just gone. Um, But the three-point outline today is simply this. Point number one is going to be true view of man. Point number two is going to be a true view of God. And the third point is simply going to be the problem of arrogance. And so we're going to jump into verse 13 and look at a true view of man. Verse 13, let me read it again. It says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. And we'll stop there because 14 finishes the thought. But what's happening here is James is addressing a group of people. And it's likely, as you read all the different commentaries, everybody's pretty much in this you know, unified agreement, that he's talking to basically a group of merchants inside the church. And he's, he's you know, addressed all these different areas of life, and now he's going to turn to the area of work. And what you find about these merchants in this one verse is they had five things on their plate, five things that they were planning to do. And if you look in this verse, you see it. First one was, today or tomorrow we will go. They're planning to travel. They have this mindset of, I'm going to go to this place, and then the second one is, they have a location to such and such a town. I have a place where I'm aiming to get to. The third thing they're planning to do uh, is, I will spend a year there. They've got a time frame in mind. I'm going to go, I'm going to spend a year, and then the fourth thing is, I'm going to trade. I'm going to, I'm going to do work. I'm, I'm going there for a purpose. And then the fifth thing is, they're going there to make a profit. They're going there to make money. So he's addressing this group of people who have these plans, these business plans, if you will, of where they're going and what they're going to do. Now let me quickly say this before we go any further, because this is where this whole sermon could get off the track and you could start throwing things at me. Simply put, is there anything wrong with making plans? No. Let's get that out up front. Is there anything wrong with making plans and, you know, sketching out, here's what I want to do? No, we, we actually, when you read the whole council of Scripture, you find over and over, especially in the book of Proverbs, that you're, you're exhorted to make plans, to be diligent, to, you know, prepare well. You know, there's illustrations and examples of that all throughout Scripture. So the issue here I want to be real clear on is not the fact that these people were making plans. If I went around this congregation right now, my bet is everyone in this room has plans for the future. Everyone in this room has plans probably for lunch in half an hour. Everyone in this room, you know, very practically, we have plans for what we're going to do and where we're going to go. So the issue is not the fact that they were making plans. Having said that, the issue then becomes they were making plans, but they were leaving God out of their plans. There was almost this arrogant assumption of, well, we have so much life And we have so much time, and so I'm going to go do these things, and God is going to be kind of left to the side. I'm going to do these things. You know, it it kind of reminds me, um, Jesus, when he was speaking in Matthew 24, he says this. He was talking about the people in the days of Noah. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now think about that for a second. Let's flash back to the days of Noah and put this in perspective. In those days, for the people, while Noah's over here building this massive ship, for these people, was there anything wrong with the fact that they were continuing on with life and they were fulfilling the plans that they had? No, ultimately, outside of sinful things they were doing, the plans themselves weren't the issue. 
The problem in the days of Noah is the people had completely forgotten about God. They were all about their busyness. They were marrying, giving in marriage, doing this, eating, drinking, enjoying life. But God had been removed from the equation. And today, as we think about this topic, even as Christians, how challenging is that? How challenging is it each day to think, today is a day unto the Lord? It's easy to say, but once you get into the busyness of a day, how hard is it to do that? It's very difficult because what happens in life is, we get busy. We get engaged. We get involved. We get, you know, doing and, you know, we're in the middle of all these things and we so quickly forget about God and it becomes about, okay, well, I've got to accomplish this today. We have our checklist. I don't know about any of you in this room. I'm a list person. I get made fun of for this all the time. I'll have like five lists going at one time and I'm a check person. I, I want to be able to check off my list, but I find often in my own life and in my own heart, when I get involved in my days, God quickly gets shifted to the side. And so for these people, that's the issue James is ultimately addressing. And, you know, you want to go even further with this. Um, I found this quote. I thought it was really interesting. It was from Robert Murray McShane, and I've mentioned him before when I've been up here. Um, he was a Scottish pastor, lived to be nine, or 29 years old, and died this young, as a young man, but had this profound impact. And, and the story of his life still is read and, and impacting people today. And, and at one point, he says it this way. And I, this, is, this, this kind of broke me a little bit as I read it this week. He said, as to myself, I have no plans. As to myself, I have no plans. And what he was saying was not, I have no plans, I'm going to sit on my couch all day and stare at the wall. But what he was saying is, I have this, you know, these things. He was heavily involved in ministry. He had these congregations he was over. He had so many things going on in his life. But what he understood was, he had no personal plans. His plans were going to be set aside for the Lord's plans. And his life was directed in such a way of, here's the word, dependence upon God in all things. You know, we want to make it personal and challenging, and we could end on this right now. I could ask you this question, pray, we could sing a song and call today. I could simply say, at any point today, did today become dependent upon God for you? At any point when you woke up this morning, was it dependent upon God, realizing he's given me this day? He's given me this breath. He's given me this opportunity to come together as a body and worship him today. Or did we get up, have our coffee, read the paper, and casually make our way, if you have little kids, listen to them scream and yell, and then show up at church today? And, and, and often we find we get into life and God gets removed. And verse 14 goes a little further and this is where it gets a little more challenging even. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Think about those words for a second. Just meditate on that for a minute. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I was thinking of that picture, and I was thinking if I brought a candle in this morning and lit it, and you're not children, so I didn't bring object lessons, but you know, if I did and I blew on the candle, blew it out, the smoke goes, it's here for a moment, and suddenly it's gone. That's our life. You know, another way of picturing it, if you want to think about it in the perspective of eternity, um, I could take this pen, I probably should, it wouldn't make any difference, we're going to tear these walls down eventually anyways, but I could put a dot on the wall right there, and I could say, that dot, and there's like 20 dots up there, so just pick one. That dot right there, if I did a loop all the way around this room, that represents your life. 
It's a dot. It's a mist. It comes and it goes. And, and, and let me take this a little further because this is where it started, it started getting me thinking differently today um, or over the last week is, you know, from a human perspective, there is a massive difference between somebody who lives to be eight years old and somebody who lives to be 80 years old. Having said that, from an eternal perspective, both are a mist. They're gone. And, and, and the reason being, eternity is so much grander. And eternity is something, if you really want to hurt your head, try to sit and wrap your mind around eternity. When I die, I go to be with the Lord if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I will be with Him forever. And if you try to grasp that, we, we ultimately, our minds can't handle that because we were made inside of time, and yet we serve a God who is outside of time. You know, as C.S. Lewis puts it, all things are eternally present before the throne of God. There's a quote that you can, you can wrestle through, meaning he is beyond time, and our lives are but a vapor. Now, the other side of that coin is, does that mean that our lives have no value? Absolutely not. Our lives are amazingly valuable, and here's the reason we know that. A, we have breath. B, as we just sang about, we have a Savior who came and died. The God-man hung on the cross for us. If that doesn't equal a life that has value, I don't know what would. Because that's God saying, your life is immensely valuable to me. But our lives are a mist. And yet so often, we live with the assumption that we will have many days, and not even many days, you know, as you think about these merchants, we'll have many profitable days. You know, the last 10 years have, have kind of wrecked that view for a lot of people. Um, you know, that idea of everything's profitable. But yet at the same time, I'll throw this out there. As the, autom- the economy turns, the stock market goes up, real estate starts coming and going again. How long will we remember the lessons of the last five or 10 years? You know, we, we just kind of live in this expectation of we'll have many days, we'll have profitable days. But ultimately, scripturally, there's no guarantee of that. You know, let's go a little further in this. Um, point two for the outline people in the room, true view of God. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And what James has done is he's just thrown a wrench into the entire planning of these people. And, he, and, and note what he hasn't done. He hasn't destroyed their plans. He hasn't said, don't go do business. Don't go to this city. Don't you know, sell and trade and try to make a profit. He hasn't said any of that. What he has said is, we need to reorient our thinking into this mindset of, if the Lord wills, then I will do this or that. And that, by the way, is not just a trite phrase. You know, you hear people say that a lot, you know, a lot of times, Lord willing, um, or as I don't remember who used to always say, Lord willing in the creek don't rise. Um, but, you, you know, you have that idea of, you know, that, that, that phrase that we kind of throw out in our vernacular, but it's so much deeper than that. It's a theological understanding of God. If God wills, then we will have these opportunities. It's a perspective change. And ultimately, what we find are three lessons about God. And I'll be really honest, I stole all three of these from John Piper, so you can trust him. Um, lesson number one. Lesson number one that we're reminded of about God right here. God, and this is, this is a hard, hard one to chew on. God governs when 
we will live, as James says in the verse, which ultimately implies God governs when we will die. So let me throw this question out. If I say God governs when you will live and when you will die, does that bring you comfort or does that scare you? And, and, and hopefully, I'm glad to hear that. We have a responsive congregation. That's a good thing. Um, hopefully, it brings comfort. Because ultimately, what you're saying right then and there, and what you're realizing right then and there is, God is in control. God is over all things. And, and we can view it from a comforting standpoint. But then you've got these crazy stories um, you know, in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll flash back the story of Abijah. Everyone knows that story, I'm sure. Um, let, me, let me refresh our minds. First uh, Kings 14. It's the story of Jeroboam. little Old Testament history flashback real fast. After Solomon died, his son was Rehoboam. The kingdom was split into two, and Jeroboam was given ten tribes. Jeroboam becomes this king, and what you find is Jeroboam leads the people into idol worship, leads the people astray, and Jeroboam's kingdom starts to be shaky, and he has a son who becomes very sick. His name was Abijah, and there is a prophet at the time. The prophet's name was Ahijah, as if that doesn't add confusion. But what ends up happening is Jeroboam sends his wife to talk to the prophet and to ask if, he, if his son is going to be healed, to you know, ask, basically, petition, heal my son. And here's the response of Ahijah, the prophet, to Jeroboam's wife. He says, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Okay, now let's just process that for a minute, because there's all sorts of theological questions that can be brought up in that, that passage. But the heart of the passage is this. What ultimately ends up happening is the prophet looks at Jeroboam's wife to respond to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and say, your son's going to die. He's eight years old. He's going to die. And the reason he's going to die, interestingly enough, and, and scholars have no clue what to do with this, so I'm not even going to try, but is... In him was the only one in your house that was found anything pleasing, and therefore he's going to go to the grave and be with me. Now think about the implications there, because this wrecks our understanding of how we approach life, how we approach death, and how we approach each day. Because what's being said there is God has the authority, God has the plans, and what's ultimately being questioned there is how do you understand God? Do you view God as being a good and loving God who works all things together for his purposes? And here's the key phrase, not for us, but for his glory. Or do you view God as a God who's there, who we love, who Jesus died, but yet he's kind of there to help serve us and make our life comfortable and convenient? Because there's no promise of that. And, and, you know, I, I'll be really honest. We wrestled through this a little bit, um, and I've shared this with some of you. You know, this past spring, um, Neely and I, Wes, our, our youngest son, you know, as he called it, had a bump. And if you look at him today, he's got a sweet scar that goes right here. And as a boy, he thinks it's the coolest thing ever. But he had a bump right here. And we took him to doctors, and we, and we did all this stuff. And, you know, it went from checking in with the pediatrician to see what was going on to, okay, we need to talk to all these different doctors. And, and there was this massive amount for about two months of, complete uncertainty. Now, this bump could literally be very little, something that just needs to be taken out, or this could be you know, a, a serious you know, deal with cancer that we're about to jump into. And, and what that was good for in our lives 
And was it really made us look to God and say, God, what if it ends up being something more serious? What if it ends up being something where this little boy is going to be brought into a whole other world that we didn't plan to go into with deep amounts of uncertainty? And, and praise the Lord, from our perspective, we got an amazing answer to prayer to end up being a little lymphangioma. He got it taken out, and he's doing great. But here's the, here's the key to that story. Is God any less God if it ends up being cancerous and something very serious? And the answer is no. And, and this is, and I haven't perfected this by any means, but I'll just speak from my heart. That's something I've wrestled through a lot because I've had to get to a point, and, and, and I've you know, literally been on my knees before God, getting to a point with that and saying, God, whatever you want that to be, I'm going to be content because I want it to be for your glory, not for what I desire. And I haven't perfected that concept, but that's been my prayer, and that's been my heart. And so when we look at this idea that God governs all of life and death, we have to ask ourselves, how do we understand the God who's working, and how do we understand the purposes for which he's working for? Which leads us to the second thing we learn about God, and it's simply this. God governs all that you accomplish says, if the Lord wills, I will do this and do that. The reminder that all of your successes, all of your achievements, everything that you have done in this life is governed by God. And you want to take that back even further. How do we know that? You know, how do we know it wasn't just me working hard and being American and conquering the world? Here's how we know it. Who gave you life? Who gave you the skills that you have? Who gave you the personality that you have to do what you do? Who gave you the mind to be able to stay on top of these things? Who gave you the abilities? And you want to make it even more sobering. Who could take them away in an instant? And it's the reminder, the daily reminder of God is in control of all of these things. We are not. Which leads us into the last thing that we learn about God. And it's simply this. God has shown us his will for our lives. And this is the, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And I do not mean he's shown us our will in the sense of you can come up and ask me any question and I'll have an exact answer. I get asked all the time by high school seniors, where should I go to school next year? Should I go to this school? Should I go to that school? Which one's going to be the right school for me? And I'll go through the questions, you know, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you consulted? Have you visited? Have you looked at all the options? And once I say yes, 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 ultimately I'll look at them and be like, it doesn't matter. And they never like that answer. But, but, but it's a true answer. It was like, it doesn't matter. If there's no clear, direct path, just keep moving. Go towards one. Because ultimately, what God wants is not for us to be seeking the next step of our life. What God wants is for us to be seeking Him. And seeking to know Him. And, you know, as, as a way of thinking about that, you know, Andrew Bonar said this. Uh, he was talking about joyous Christian living. He summed it up by saying, May no part of day or night from sacredness be free. So what does it mean to know him in light of this work and in light of the setting of what James is talking? What he's really addressing is something that's very pertinent in our culture today. What we've done is created a dichotomy of life. We've separated the spiritual from the rest of what we do. We have church, we have Bible studies, we have this, then we have work, and we have family, and we have all these compartments in life, as opposed to letting the spiritual be a part of everything we do. You know, it's kind of like, I heard somebody talk about this recently, the Titanic. When that ship was built, 
It was hailed as the ship that couldn't be sunk, so on and so forth. We know that didn't work out. But the reason, and I'd never really thought about this before, the reason outside of being this massive ship was the idea was by building that ship, they'd separated it into all these different halls. And so if something hit, if an iceberg hit, water would flood, but they would be able to contain it in one section of the ship as opposed to it letting it overflow into all the sections of the ship. Again, clearly it didn't work out, but it's kind of the same thing in our lives. We've kind of designed our lives to say, okay, I have this compartment, and I have this compartment, and I have this compartment, and nothing shall overflow into the other one. And that is the exact opposite of what Bonar was talking about when he said, they none of day or night from sacredness be free. And so how do we address that? The question becomes, how do we avoid this separation? I'm going to read you uh, a quote somebody gave me, and it's one of the best quotes I've read ever on dealing with this, because I think it speaks right to it. It's from Martin Luther. And he said this, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Here's the key. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. Goes further, The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And what Luther was addressing there is something that's a big challenge today, because what we're tempted to do today is, because we have this separation, we're tempted to tack Jesus onto stuff. Well, if I put a cross on it, or I put a fish on it, or I put Romans 8, 20, you know, whatever it is, I can throw, you know, whatever verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and the world will be right. You know, if, we, if we put that on it, or if I listen to Christian music, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with all these things, but that's not what makes something sacred. What makes it sacred is doing it with excellence unto the Lord. You know, think about Jesus. Somebody would challenge me with this recently, and this, this was one I hadn't thought of. Jesus' life, the majority of what we know about his life is contained in three years of his life. Jesus lived 33 years. We know very little about the first 30 years. Here's a question. Were those last three years any more sacred than the first 30 years? Think about James, author who wrote this. James, who wrote this book, was the younger brother of Jesus. He had observed Jesus. So as he's writing this concept and challenging this idea, he's probably doing it very specifically because what he understood was the first 30 years when Jesus grew up and when he was swinging a hammer and he was working as a carpenter under his earthly father, was just as sacred as the last three years when he was on mission and changing the whole way of thinking about the Messiah and ultimately when he died on the cross because he was doing it, here's the key, all unto the Lord. So as we think about this idea of, you know, what does it mean to have a true view of God? True view of God is an understanding that God is in control of life. God is in control of our activities. He's in control of the day we'll die. And ultimately, his will is for us to do all things unto him, not separated from him. And this leads us to the third and final point, simply this, verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And what James is addressing is this idea that today or tomorrow we will go and do this and we will do that with absolute confidence in self versus absolute confidence in God and letting God 
be the center of all that we do with this mindset, not just with trite words, if the Lord wills, but with a lifestyle of, if God wills, here's what I will do today. If God wills, here's where I will be a year from now. If God wills, this is what I plan to accomplish. You know, as you think about that, that problem of arrogance, it's hard, especially, and let's make this very practical to Hilton Head Island, it's hard to be wealthy because success breeds success, which breeds self-sufficiency. And it's very easy when you have success at things to become sufficient in yourself and forget who gave you the success. And that's a battle we all have to face in different areas. You know, Proverbs 38 through 10, I love this saying, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Sounds very similar to the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And the idea of both those is we need to daily be mindful of who gives us these things and not be fooled by this, this spirit of self-sufficiency. And ultimately, Romans eleven thirty six. this is the verse I want us to think most about, is simply this. It's a summary of a Christian worldview. As we think about how we address work and how we address all these things, it says this. It's familiar to many in this room. For from him, through him, and to him are all things To him be the glory forever. Notice what it's not saying. For from me and through me and to me are all things. To me be the glory forever. And that right there is the difference between how a Christian approaches work and how a person who is outside of Christ approaches work. Because ultimately the heart of sin is it's me taking the place of God and it's me literally trying to be God in my own life and do what I want to do without him involved. And what James is saying is, no, 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 no. It's not about removing God from the equation. It's about centering all of life around our Savior. So as we go out from here today, what does this mean? How does this speak to us? What is the challenge? Um, How do we break that down into a couple points? And I'm going to skip verse 17 for time. But I'll, I'll say this. The challenge for life today is this. It's not simply walking out, and this would be good, but this isn't it. Walking out and saying, life's a mist. Man, it's short. I need to embrace life. Because if that's all we got, we missed it. And it's also not simply walking out the door and saying, God is in control of everything. God is amazing. That's great. But if that's all we got, we didn't get the full picture. What walking out today what we should walk out with today, and what I, my prayer is for myself and for all of us in this room, is that we'd walk out the door today and re-examine the way we approach life. And, and, and for many in this room, I'll say this very honestly, this isn't a new concept, but it's a reminder we desperately need. Because as we get into the patterns of life, even as we get into the patterns of ministry as a church, it's very easy to start looking to self to be successful and start making plans for ourselves, as opposed to letting all those plans center around the person and work and character of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we leave this morning, take time and ask yourself, okay, how practically can I do it? Because it's easy to say these things, but, but how practically tomorrow morning when I wake up, 
Can I set my day in such a way that I'm not just going through my plans, I'm doing this day for the glory of my God? And how does that practically look? It looks like a person who gets out of bed and gets on their knees and says, Lord, Lord, give me mercy today. Because the moment I leave my focus, the moment I take my focus away from Christ and of the gospel, the moment I remove that from the center of what I'm staring at, I'll start staring at the things and I'll start looking to myself and I'll start doing without doing for a greater purpose. It's like Martin Luther said, it's not about tacking Jesus onto things by prayer at the end or crosses here and there. It's about doing things with excellence because when you go to work tomorrow, if you're selling real estate, you're selling real estate for the glory of God, not to make a profit. If you leave here and you're cleaning toilets tomorrow, you're cleaning toilets because God loves clean toilets and we're doing it for the glory of God. If you're working at Zipline Hilton Head, you're having fun and you're enjoying and interacting people to show them the glory of God in the midst of what you're doing. It's about having a purpose and a mission that is revolving around the glory of our God and letting other people in and letting other people see that each day. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you give us your word and that we can look at three or four verses. And and even though it's such a short passage, there's so much challenge, so much conviction. And and yet even for many, as it's, it's a lot of reminding, we need reminders. We need reminders of your beauty. We need the reminders of the gospel. And we need reminders to set our eyes, to set our hearts, set our minds upon you each day. And I pray by your grace that as we walk out of here, we would be challenged to examine our work, Lord, that we wouldn't do it unto ourselves, but that all that we would do, we would do with the mindset of if you will, we will do it for you and for your glory. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.